welcome to Kindergarten Chaos, the Developmentally Appropriate Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to Kindergarten Kiosk. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Kathy. And today we have an interview with Dr. Kainold about his book, Balancing the Equation, that he wrote with Dr. Larson. And I was really excited to talk to him, I must admit. <laughs> you were nerding out as a fangirl to I was a mathematician? Little, I was, no, because he's... Because they are from the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics. And that so it would be like, like if I was having an interview with Marilyn Jager Adams. <laughs> well, I learned from the book that this whole debate about whether we should teach the whether we should teach math with understanding or whether we should just be teaching how to go through procedures goes back a long, 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 long time longer than I ever realized, pretty much to the beginning of education in America, and that we've pretty much been following the same mathematical script that was introduced back in 1788. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's time for some fine-tuning. <laughs> and that people keep trying to push us to different, different types of mathematical understanding but people just keep wanting to go back to that 1788 model of mathematics and and it's been a it's been a hard fight to get kids to learn with understanding but I really liked their book balancing the equation because it's not a large book it's not a long read and it's written for parents and for educators and I thought this would be a great little book to have if you want to explain what's going on in mathematics to your parents or to your staff just copy out portions of this book and hand it out and it's got really clear concise um, explanations for people oh that's cool sounds like a great book I mean I have to borrow it you will have to borrow it. You'll like it. It's a good book, and I think everybody will like the interview, too. So let's move on to the interview. Yeah, I'm going to, I'm really excited. I, I looked at your biography, and then I looked at the book and saw the the NCTM, and I'm like, oh, I kind of, ner- I had a nerd out moment for a second. <laughs> well, it's, it's really funny. You know, Matt Larson and I are really good friends. We've been friends for a long time. And uh, he just happens now to be president of NCTM right now. And about, um, you know, the book came out last, um, let's see, this is 2016. So like February mm-hmm. of this year. Uh, or so, but we wrote it mostly last year, and I'll never forget. He, yeah, because we wrote it like from February to February. It took us a year to get the book out. And he called me. I was working in, in Las Vegas of all places, and he calls me on the phone. And he goes, "I've got this book idea, and we have to write it, and I want to write it right now. We're going to have to get it done." I was like, "Matt, how are we? How do we even have any time to do something like this?" And it initially started out as a book for parents, and then. Um, Solution Tree and even NCTM said, well, you know, we don't really write books for parents. We mostly write books for educators, you know, and I'm like, yeah, you know, and then we don't market to the PTA. So in the end, what I was able, what kind of happened as Matt and I wrote it was we were able to have two audiences and what, you know, I write a lot of books and, and it's, I'm always very aware of the reader and am I taking care of the reader and who's the audience actually trying to read the book. And it was, 
was confusing because sometimes you'd be writing to the teacher and sometimes you'd be writing to the parents. So what we did was um, basically the first three chapters are to the educator and the last two chapters are written directly to parents so the parents could pick it up and kind of go, oh, so these are the things I should be looking for and supporting and trying to do at home. And then um, I thought there'd be soft accountability if in the first part of the book where it's for educators, we'd say to parents every once in a while, we'd have a little, okay, parents, so make sure your school's doing this. Mm -hmm. And then in the two chapters for parents, we'd say, okay, educators, so make sure your parents are doing this. So like in my own weird way, I thought, oh, maybe we could be holding the reader accountable to doing the work. But, um, you know, it's been funny. I think if the book's gotten a great reaction, I don't think we necessarily expected that. I think um, we were, the, if I was to say why both Matt and I felt we needed to write the book, it was because of all of the noise that was out there, um, especially on Twitter. You know, we're both on Twitter quite a bit, and um, just the noise about that just wasn't true about mm -hmm. the Common Core and really, at least in mathematics, what was going on. And, and I was kind of like, you know, we need to cut through that a little bit and maybe just say, well, here's, you, you can read whatever you want, but here's what we know happened. And then, and here's how research supports our position. This isn't just our opinions. So, um, you know, I don't know. Folks that still are going to be polarizing, it probably won't change their mind. But, but I think for others, it's just an informative support. So, yeah. so there you go. That's why we ended up writing it. And we're really good friends. Um, and I, I probably have a, a gentler writing style. Matt's a little more cynical. So <laughs> we, we were a nice balance for each other. Yeah, <laughs> That's nice. And we're, and we're both nerdy, just nerdy enough that, you know, it, 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 it was fun for us to write. So. <laughs> so there you go. So that's the history on the book. That's how it came and, to be. Um, yeah, and then I'll, you know, you just ask me whatever you want, and I'll give you the best answers I can, at least based on what we understand currently. Okay, great. I'm excited. I'm excited to get into it. I, it when uh, when the Common Core and the math standards were being in implemented when I was teaching, I felt like I was getting really good training as a teacher, but I always had a hard time communicating my training to the parents that I was working with. I felt like that was a hard bridge to cross. And so when I read this, I thought, this is going to be such a great tool to get the communication between us better and help us. And especially um, K-5, I think, mm -hmm. you know, um, with younger children's parents for which what their children are going through is not what they remember. Mm -hmm. That's part of that pendulum swing because most, you know, today's 10-year-old's um, parent or, or probably didn't really, probably had a more rote memorization experience in mathematics. You know, just give me the standard algorithm and let me go. Mm -hmm. and, and it was either good or bad. And, and so that's how they sort of remember math. So, you know, I think, for example, one thing that we're recommending now, uh, there's a really good website called LearnZillion. Are you mm -hmm. familiar with yeah. LearnZillion? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we're doing is um, helping certain schools we're working with to uh, when they send home a homework assignment, let's say for a third grader, put a LearnZillion link for that standard that they're working on so the parents can watch the link. Not to help the child, but to help the parent better understand why their child's experiencing this in class. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're, which is sort of a, you know, that idea of engaging parents actually in the independent practice at home 
And if the parents aren't quite confident, giving them a place to go to gather more confidence, um, especially in urban districts, we thought would be a helpful tool. But, you know, I, I don't know for sure. But, you know, we, we think that things like that can, uh, can help educate parents to better support their kids. Right. There was something you said, too, that I really liked, which is this idea of um, play. Mm-hmm. I think uh, that mathematics, you know, like I used to take the kids and you can't see, but I have a window here <laughs> in front of me. And I would just say, okay, um, Adam, like when Adam was seven, I'd be like, how many of your hands will fit that window? How many hands big is that window? So so if you think about it intuitively, he's got to know the area is this is the one unit. And then mm-hmm. he would just put his hands on the window, which, of course – you know, drove his mother crazy, and, you know, and then, uh, but it, that window would be a 20-hand atom window, right? Uh-huh. So, so that's play. I mean, that's making an early concept of area, you know, and what does a unit of anything mean, a square unit at least, you know, uh, it doesn't have to be a traditional, you know, like, oh, you know, measure the exact area of that window. Well, yeah, he might have to do that eventually, but, but early on, learning mathematics should be play. I agree with that. So, we suggest that to parents, you know, that part of what they have to do is, is try to do that at home, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and see it when it's happening, you know, if, or when those things are available. Yeah. All right. So. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about um, the history? I thought it was so fascinating that you kind of have a history in brief of math education. And that there's a lot in there. And I didn't realize how far back this whole argument <laughs> yeah, goes. Yeah, just 30 years. Yeah. yeah. It, <laughs> Yeah, all the way back to the beginning, you know, literally of our country. Um, so, you know, what happened was a lot of it. it so, a lot of um, educators, actually, and and even pol- you know policymakers, interpreted the Common Core as a as a swing back to. Um, you know, conceptual understanding and and really uh, developmental understanding and an abandonment of procedural fluency and, and being able to do some uh, remote drill and skill work. And and it never called for that. The the, the 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 common core was sort of vilified for that, saying we're abandoning basic skills. And and yet when you really look at the standards, there there is no abandonment of basic skills. Mm-hmm. So, um, but there's a redefining of what essential skills were, of what procedural fluency even means. So, as um, because Matt and I are old enough that we've lived through it. You know, I've lived through. So if you think about it, I was a student in the 60s of the new math movement, which was a conceptual understanding. And the joke in the 60s was that um, everybody knew that 5 plus 8 was the same thing as 8 plus 5, um, but they didn't know what it was. <laughs> but the, we knew the commutative property of addition, but we didn't actually know what 8 plus 5 actually equaled. So, <laughs> so we had abandoned procedural fluency. And so because of the new math movement of the 60s, Sure, for kids like me who loved math, you know, it was great. But for a lot of folks, a lot of kids, they really suffered. Um, all by all standards of measurement, by 1983, that's when um, you know the the National Assessment Education Progress Report came out and said we're in the tank. We're we're terrible. So mathematically, so the 
um, in the 80s and 90s, we had this swing back to basics, and we, and we went back to just procedural fluency, and, and like, it just memorizes stuff, and don't worry if you don't understand it. Here's a quick way to get it done, you know, and so just cross the X's when you're using the FOIL method in middle school, and, you know, or in, in elementary school, you know, if you just, you can learn a, a division algorithm that has no actual developmental meaning, but just memorize that, and you'll be fine. So... That movement lasted almost 20 years through the 80s and the 90s. And then in 1990, NCTM came out with the curriculum evaluation standards and sort of pulled the pendulum back the other way. Um, and that brought us all the way through the 2000s. And, and, and when the Common Core, and, and there was, so now there's this kind of sort of half the country's in procedural fluency, half the country seems to be in conceptual understanding and when the common core came out everybody because the standards are more rigorous in general and and here's what's interesting rigor in our definition is not that a problem is hard so for example one thing an example i always tell people is look um here's an example that's really hard for everybody in the room but has no rigor tell me what the tangent of five pi over six is and no one knows. Even people teaching pre-calculus are going, oh, I'm not sure. Let, hold on. Let me get my little unit circle out. And, <laughs> and, and so the point being that, that there's no rigor to that. There's no complexity of reasoning. There's no real um, conceptual understanding required. It's a basic fact. So in middle school, the example I'll use is like two to the negative third. You either know it's one eighth or you don't. Now, if I asked you to provide an argument to validate its truth that it's one-eighth, that begins to change the game. So so the the reality was that the Common Core called for both in the you know 2010 when it came out. What a lot of people don't know, and it relates to one of your questions, is that the K-8 standards, although written by a committee that had mostly university folks on it, were very closely adopted and, and closely aligned, and you would know this because you were teaching then, uh, to uh, the the focal points that came out from NCTM. Mm -hmm. So NT, NCTM released the focal points in 2008. In 2009, the governors called for the standards. They were written during 2009, reviewed in 2010, and came out in January of 2011. So, so the reality is that group Really, if you, you actually look closely at NCTEM's original focal points in 2008 at, for second grade or first grade or kindergarten, and then you look at the um, st Common Core State Standards for Mathematics in kindergarten, first or second grade or through fifth, you'll see like, oh my gosh, there's almost an exact parallel. So there was a heavy influence, I felt, by NCTM um, and the focal points, which were more developed by... You know, the NCTEM's focal points were developed by a committee of practitioners mm -hmm. as well as some university folks, whereas the criticism of the Common Core Standards was that the standards themselves are developed by primarily um, university folks, and un which, unlike myself, you know, who's someone in the field, a practitioner, that kind of, because I was laughing when you said, you know, I wish somebody would have asked us. We, we could have and I'm like, yeah, exactly. You're, you're right. Mm -hmm. And I won't even get into the high school standards with you because they're a mess. And that's a whole different problem. But K-8, I felt like the standards were pretty tight in terms of their vertical progressions and developmentally getting kids ready for standard algorithms and so on. So mm -hmm. um, to me, uh, 
you know, I wish they would have developed pre-K standards, but they did not because they're, you know, pre-K is not mandatory and, and there was a policy issue on that. Um, could you actually, uh, about creating standards for a, a grade level that's technically not mandatory. Mm-hmm. Um, however, there are some states that have some great pre-K standards, like Maryland, for example. I love their pre-K standards and I've used those and with other organizations that needed them. So um, when Matt and I started looking at that, we just kept going backwards and going like, oh my gosh, this just keeps happening and happening and happening. And the pendulum would swing one way or the other, which is why we ended up calling the book Balancing the Equation. Because mm-hmm. it's like, rather than the pendulum, as you indicated, you know, Pike started and said, look, what kids need to know in math, K-8, because there were no secondary schools then. Actually, it was K-6 back in late 1700s, early 1800s. Um, are, are these arithmetic facts. That's what they need to memorize and learn and do. And it wasn't until the turn of the century that we really got the pendulum swinging the other way. And then so basically we just create and, and we were like, holy smokes, let's create this and let's let's show how it's time for the pendulum to stop swinging. Mm-hmm. And that Common Core really is calling for is a common sense curriculum for kids mm-hmm. that asks them to do both. Yeah. So, you know, that's... Um, well, it I, is it is a fascinating read. It we was to discover that. And I, th- the first thing I did when I uh, when I looked through this timeline, and I like that you break it down in a little graph too, because that was easy for me to digest. That but, was my idea. I'm telling Matt I because like that was my idea. I was like, Matt, people need a visual. <laughs> In fact, I wanted to do like a big long timeline with little people <laughs> on it, but Swisher Tree wouldn't let me. Yeah, I like your graph. It it was helpful. I'm a visual person, <laughs> but the first yeah, I thing too. I did was I called my mom. And I'm like did you go to elementary school in the 60s? And she said, yeah, because we have this conversation all the time because I, I love, I love this, I, this way of teaching math because I have very poor um, math, under, mathematical understanding. It's very poor. I can't go into the grocery store and give you and tell you if I have enough money for the groceries in my cart because I just can't hold all that information in my head because I was trained to put it all on paper as a kid. And my Uh, mom is completely the opposite. She knows she can go in the grocery store. She knows exactly how much everything's going to cost. She can add up everybody's scores. And when we're playing a game, she's great. And I looked at and I said, you went to (laughs) you went to school in the 60s during conceptual math. And she said, "Uh uh-huh. And I said, I went to school in the 80s and 90s when it was all drill, didn't I? (laughs) And and if you were a really good memorizer, then you did fine. But Mm -hmm. if you weren't, then you were basically told that you were failing at math. And that's really sad because I don't, you know, uh, the whole idea of speed and memorization. You know, you asked an interesting question. I thought your question about automaticity and memorization. Say a little more about that, like what you were thinking there. Uh, well, I wanted to talk about the balance between do we want kids to memorize things? Do we want them to understand things? Or do we want them to have automaticity? Because I know that there's still, for example, there's still a lot of time tests going on to get okay. kids to be fast. And, and I know that sometimes teachers will skip over the understanding part because because the being fast part is easier to test and it's easier to show. So Yeah, so I, I 
know the exact place in the book, but there is now today um, a tremendous amount of evidence that conceptual understanding um, uh, impacts procedural fluency and not vice versa. So if you were to start with the procedural fluency or standard algorithms first, the conceptual understanding is more likely never to come. Mm -hmm. But if you start first with conceptual understanding, then the procedural fluency will follow. Um, it's, it's even one of the reasons why I don't have a problem with putting, I mean, a calculator in a child's hand because uh, eventually that's going to help develop part of that, that automaticity that you want. For, for example, uh, I couldn't spell the word receive for years. And here I'm an author. I write books. And, and, um, but I, it got self-corrected so many times in so many manuals. And I, had, I finally learned how to do it. Right. And that's just through deliberate practice um, and trying to correct at each moment in time of that practice. So if you think of mathematics as a um, as a practice activity, you know, kind of the grid idea from Angela Duckworth. Well, for practice to be successful, it has to be delivered, meaning it has to have I have to make an attempt and then I have to reflect on whether I was right or not um, with how I thought about it. And then I have to try again. And then I reflect, and then I try again and reflect, try again. I kind of keep doing that cycle. I, I check in to see was I right or not. And so when I think about automaticity, though, I think about it as much bigger than just per, just per, just what we would call skill and fact knowledge. You know, can I do my times tables? I would look at it as can I actually because automaticity to me means I eventually can do something without thinking about it. So I could de de eventually use that algorithm or understand that place value and be able to show you that that's not three, that's 300. And it just is automatic for me because I've practiced that understanding so many times that eventually it's, it's an auto. So auto the, the automaticity for me isn't just about um, memorizing basic facts. It's, a, it's actually about... Um, being automatic with respect to both the conceptual understanding, even even being able to look at a problem, a math problem that a third a third grader might get, and go immediately like it becomes automatic. Oh, when I see problems like that, I'll attack this way first. I'll try that way first. Or or I've got these three tools in my toolbox, and I'll try this graph, you know, this number line first because that might help me understand that multiplication problem better or every time I see a fraction multiplication problem the first thing I do is go to some kind of um, grid right some kind of they don't know it's an area model but go to some kind of area model you know or and maybe I like circles and you like squares but the reality is that we we understand to use that tool so to me part of the automaticity isn't just on the basic facts it's also on the process of of learning the mathematics so um I, and I, I do feel like there there does have to be both a balance of memorization and conceptual understanding, but I don't think it has to be timed ever. In fact, I, the word Matt and I and many colleagues of, of ours will speak out against ever doing times tables that are that are timed. You know, any any kind of uh, operational facts that are timed is is in my mind just destroying a student confidence and and the reality is like I, I was just it's really funny we we um we do we do a thing called Matsuyama Mondays it's sushi on Mondays in our house so um the this person that I've gotten to know really well her child 
um, is in third grade uh, and, and under so much stress because she can't quite get all the problems done on the grid in just enough time. And, and like her daughter's not sleeping. I'm like, this is stupid. I, I, you know, I was like, would you like me to call the teacher? Because <laughs> in my mind, she, her daughter can do them all. Mm-hmm. It just takes her about, you know, uh, an extra minute or two. It's, it's not even, and I'm like, who among any of us is asked to solve a problem in, in normal life that's, that's under the time crunch of one minute or two mm-hmm. minutes or whatever? Um, so, you know, so the reality is I'm not sure how that serves a child's, uh, the purpose of, of learning. What I do think that's really good is, you know, if, if the reason where I do think testing or checking for understanding of my basic facts is, can really be helpful is to see where there's holes in my understanding. So why do I always have problems with seven times nine, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That's a classic. Seven times eight is a classic, actually. And and um and what is what is it about my not understanding what seven eights are or how to figure out eight sevens or do I you know the groupings or the pairings why can't I see it as four fourteens or you know so if you if I've been trained up with that likelihood that I'll have a problem with eight times seven is fifty six down the road and not just some memorized number that I came up with because the teacher said I got to memorize it you know that I have real understanding of it so and this doesn't go away by the way. Um, mm-hmm. Although we're talking about this for K-5, you know, K-4, the reality is this is the exact same problem we have with middle school and even high school mathematics, only the problems become a little bit more complex. But the reality is it's still the exact same problem. You know, and, and so you're right. I think we, um, if for me, when I'm referring to automaticity, I'm referring to both product and process of learning, not mm-hmm. not just the basic facts. Not just that, that's the difference for me. Okay, that- they, yeah, that I thank you for explaining that. I I really I think that uh, that helps me understand it more than I did before. So yeah, thank you for that. Um, I know that there are a lot of teachers. I've heard this before, so I was hoping you could address it. Is I've heard teachers say that they um, feel like, let me see if I can describe what I've heard. Um, I feel like a lot of people feel restricted by the standards they've been given um, in mathematics because I know there's a lot of pushback from uh, early childhood teachers because they want to have play in their classroom and they want to do things that are developmentally appropriate and they want to do... Um, and they want to have time for the kids to to talk and to have conversations. And to me, that all fits within the window of the standards we've been given. But I've, I've heard a lot of pushback that teachers don't feel like there is. And I wonder if that's um, a yeah, problem. Could you t- talk to that? I think, I think so. And, you know, and I think when I saw that question, too, I was thinking about um, feeling that pushback from the materials they're using, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so first of all, let me answer the broader question, then talk about the materials issue. Okay. So, I think one of the cool things is that um, folks like Matt, myself, and others, and all the work we do, K twelve, you know, we're very clear. At least fifty percent of the mathematics time in in an elementary school, when you're doing your math lesson, at least 50% should be peer-to-peer engaged discussions where kids are actually talking, experiencing the mathematics together, working together, and the teacher 
is out among the students. And in fact, in, in my school district where I was at, um, in, in all our elementary feeder schools, all the furniture is a horseshoe. And it's really awesome. So the kids sit in a horseshoe, and they and, and the teacher can just kind of wheel in or kneel in or stand in and work with them. And, uh, and they learn how, as early as first grade, how to become a team and work together and learn and, and talk about their math together. Because if there's one thing I think the Common Core really expects, it's that it's what we see and hear kids doing, not just what we see them doing. So I'm very clear with elementary school principals. If you don't hear the students talking mathematics during a math lesson, then that teacher doesn't really understand what the nature and design of a true mathematics lesson must look like. So, so as, as that teacher chooses certain and, – and I've also often asked elementary school teachers, are you teaching – what do you think you're teaching when you're teaching math? Are you teaching them to do a bunch of math problems? Because that's kind of what the lesson looks like, right? I'll pull these three, four pride problems out. I'll have the kids do these problems. I'll have them watch me do them. And then I'll tell them go practice them. And I'm like, actually, you're not. You're, you're teaching them a standard. And, that, and then for that standard, you chose some problems that you think represent the learning of that standard. If they practice those, then they would demonstrate learning of the standard. So, so you need to be really clear with your students, no matter how young they are, that this lesson today is about this standard. We need to learn how to use a number line to add fractions. That's the standard today. Now we're going to do some problems that will help us learn that. And, and that's, um, quite, that's quite a shock to teachers, because they're kind of like, they think math is a bunch of problems, including the ones that like, uh, I've got to do all the problems that are in the book, that are in the lesson of the book. And I'm a big fan of your curriculum. So that, so knowing that, that the class should sort of be this balance of whole group where the teacher does model and small group discourse where the kids are talking and the teacher's facilitating our learning. Um, your, I think part of that pushback that you heard, um, so if you can, so, and I'm someone who writes uh, six, 12 math books, Matt writes K eight books. Mm -hmm. So when the, so if you followed my timeline earlier, 2009, April, the Common Core Standards are commissioned. Mm -hmm. In 2010, they're written and go out for review. In January 2011, they're released. And then that's when the federal government got involved and said, well, we're going to have to test these new standards. So, you know, um, and, and part of the noise, which we talk about in here, mm -hmm. of the Common Core was people having a hard time separating the testing of the standards from the standards themselves. And um, actually, uh, the U.S. Department of Ed today, Ed Week actually had a U.S. Department of Ed article today that showed a, kind of an interactive map where something like 41 or 42 of our states still have the Common Core standards in math. Even if they abandoned the testing of PARC or Smart Balance, they're still, the standards are still the, the same. They haven't changed their standards. Mm -hmm. So, so that's good. So 2011 and, and now because of the testing window coming up in 2015, now in 2012, which you were probably still teaching then, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Was. yeah. So think of the 11, 12 school year mm -hmm. and there was a call for all these materials. And what a lot of publishing companies did was just sort of tack on common core stuff language icons all kinds of stuff to their current materials 
Now, I could name a couple. I don't want to because I'm a writer and, and I don't want yeah, to. We don't want to do that. Either. No. Yeah, that wouldn't be right. But but the reality was, and that, that took us through 11, 12 school year and 12, 13 school year. And so, for example, it took us um, two and a half years to write the new programs around to write brand new programs around the actual standards themselves. Mm-hmm. So my um, middle school and high school program didn't even come out till 2015. So the one thing I would say is if, if they were early adopters of what were quote unquote labeled as common core books, then yes, you're right. They ran, uh, they ran, uh, you know, it wasn't fair because I felt it put teachers in really difficult position because the books weren't really designed that way. Mm-hmm. Today, if they've adopted books that are kind of 2015 copyright and beyond, you're probably okay. They probably actually have uh, more representative of the standards materials that are actually helping the teachers see ways in which to provide developmental lessons. And also, like for example, our our um, our elementary program, Go Math, has to you know, have built in the vertical progressions for the multiplication. I mean, we didn't have any, you have to, otherwise you're not going to get adopted. So having said that though, I don't think that the textbook should ever be the pure resource. I think, um, the mistake that the other mistake that's been made, and I think I feel bad because especially for elementary teachers is that, um, they were kind of asked to begin to rethink, or use these new materials or rethink how they do it, but then the professional development that was necessary so that they could have the freedom to make good decisions with the materials didn't follow. Mm-hmm. In your case, it sounded like in where you were, you had the benefit of good colleagues and, and kind of yeah. professional development at least that yeah. seemed to allow you to make good decisions no matter what materials you were yeah. using. Well, it was, it was interesting because when I first started teaching, we had a very uh, conceptual understanding mathematics program and I was a brand new teacher and I would look at those lessons and I had no idea how to teach them. And I thought, this is the most rigid. And I came from a very systemic math program as a child and I thought this is crazy how, how are we supposed to teach them math so I did a terrible job the first couple years and then when we started to adopt the NCTM standards they pulled us all back gave us all yeah. great training and then I went back to that exact same program and did the exact same lessons but my, I looked at them with completely different eyes because I could see there was so much background knowledge that I had now of what I was actually doing. So I, I think that that's been that I don't, I can't speak to what it's like for other teachers all over the country, but I think the training definitely made a difference for me. Well, and there were materials that were out there. In fact, Matt and I addressed it in the book, you know, where, where parents were legitimately complaining about what their children were being asked to do. And they weren't being asked to do things that were actually in the standards, Mm -hmm. you know? So, you know, that, um, I think I've only written one, uh, so I'm from Chicago, but we live in Northern California now in a small town called Lodi, California. And, um, we have a small daily paper. We call it the Lodi leaflet. And, um, and I, uh, I, I've only written one article in the opinion, or not the opinion, but whatever it is, the letter to the editor. And it was when someone was coming out making a lot of false claims, and I just felt like I had to respond, you know, because the examples the person was using aren't in any common core standards that I know of and, and were absolutely crazy. They, those weren't the kinds of things we're asked kids to do. But I think your point's really well taken because 
I also feel that there is extra pressure on elementary school teachers for two reasons. One is because there, many of them were not content specialists in mathematics. So, so the teaching of math is, is hard enough of a hurdle in some ways. Um, so there has to be this reasonable opportunity or time for training and, you know, or, or professional development so they can feel confident with the materials or, or, or with the idea of teaching mathematics that has this balance. I think the other thing is, is that the, there's also the pressure in all the other subject areas too. Mm -hmm. And so it's just, and, and so kind of, you know, English was going to more of a whole language and kind of a practical reading approach. And, you know, although many of the parallels of the shifts were the same in English mm -hmm. language arts and in math, but for a lot of folks, maybe English language arts was a little bit easier to take on than depending on which one the district wanted to attack first. And yeah, um, just really, really tough. So, so I think that was is was a harder pressure on anyone that whether it, or if you're a K eight building where you're teaching all classes even in sixth grade or seventh grade or eighth grade that's really really hard on those folks. So, you know, I really I really do get that. Uh, my oldest daughter happens to be a math teacher, former math teacher, middle school math teacher, and middle school principal. So when it happened for her, she she was very easy. It was easy for her to go in and literally as principal just do all the training for math. Mm -hmm. But how we you know how many schools have that? You know, mm -hmm. someone who actually gets it and can and can do that for the teachers and help them, mm -hmm. um, you know, with the curriculum. So I do blame some of. Uh, the publishers initial responses to the common core but mm -hmm. because they just sort of cut and pasted you know stuff mm -hmm. together um but today that shouldn't be the case well that's in, good that's good yeah i i was just thinking of some of my uh, experiences with some of the curriculum i had seen where be, because i'd come I'm, I'm trying to find some common ground with people who are are feeling um unsettled by the the math standards because they're so comfortable for me but I was in a district where they gave us good training and they told us here's your book use it however you want to use whatever lessons work and change whatever you don't like so I was able to say for example there was a lesson on um number sense and it used rec and recs and they had pictures of rec and recs well i could throw out that whole lesson and bring in an actual rec and rec if i wanted to and it was fine so i wondered if there's teachers in districts who have to do everything on the page um, yeah. and so that's why they feel like it's not as hands-on and as concrete as they want it to be so i'm yeah you know uh, the two things I can, or one thing, two things I would say about that. One is that I'm sorry for that because, you know, for any of us to feel like, um, to find meaningfulness in our work, we have to own that work. We, we have to kind of make it work for who we are. And as long as you're teaching the essential standards, it shouldn't matter, you know. Um, but what I think has happened is in this era of, accountability maybe because of the testing aspect of the standards, mm -hmm. then uh, it's possible that we have district offices or central offices that go, no, everybody in the same day, lesson, same day, same place, same, and that is a huge mistake. I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer in what I call defined autonomy. And defined autonomy would be, defined means, 
by the end of first semester of second grade, these standards, these 12 standards must be done. These are the materials we have to get them done. But now you and your team, your second grade team, have a lot of freedom inside that to get those standards done. What you don't have a choice would be not to do those standards, <laughs> but you have, but you know, like which, you know, that wouldn't be good because then that's an equity issue, right? Some kids don't get access then to the actual curriculum. Mm-hmm. But you should have a lot of freedom and choice. That's the autonomy part. As long as you stay within that defined structure of the of what we call in the professional learning community, we call it critical question one, number one, which is what do we want every child to know and be able to do? What what is the essential learning for this course or this grade level in this subject? And so you know, to me, um, that is the ideal. And so so uh, I was actually. I was just working in, um, this happened to be a middle school that was using a particular program, and the principal literally told the teachers, you cannot make your own decisions. You must follow that page by page, exactly as they showed you how to do it. And I told that principal, you're insane. You know, like, there is, you, you, I said, teachers are not robots. And I, I hate, and I told the principals, I, and I hate to tell you this, but what this particular group is recommending is not what we would consider to be best practice for learning mathematics in the country. So so you're actually requiring them to do what I would consider to be malpractice. I said malpractice, like bad practice, like we know better. We don't teach that way anymore. I said, if you know better, how can you allow them then to, I said, you know, so anyway, so it sounds like you were in a good situation. I was in a very good situation. you're doing the essential standards, but you had a lot of freedom to kind of. Yeah. Well, and a Did lot of training too. Teachers? Did you work with colleagues to kind of figure some of it out? Yeah, I had. I was very lucky because I had a very supportive district and a very supportive team. So nice. it made transitioning to new standards very easy. And I think my own personal experience of, um, because I I always was very good at math, but I always felt like I was secretly bad at math because I didn't understand it. And I always performed really poorly on uh, timed tests. So I thought, I'm getting A's, but I'm just following procedures and I don't know what I'm doing. So I must secretly be really bad at this. <laughs> so I, when, I, when I went to the training and I learned all these underlying concepts, it was like a whole bunch of light bulbs went off in my head and I just wanted to give it to the kids. I was so excited to give that to them. So if you take a look, um, look on page 92 of the book. I think this is one of my favorite, um, kind of pullouts that we use and and give out to parents and so on. And this one happens to be for pre-K five. Um, you know, and notice the very first thing we do suggest is that they still do help their child with basic facts. You can always work on that. I even, as the kids got older, would, you know, I'd, I'd, tr- I'd be like, okay, really? I'd, I'd say, what's zero times 5,922? This is when they're like in second grade. And they'd be like, dad, really? How are we supposed to read that? I said, what is zero times that number? I, I <laughs> you make him think. So I expected him to know zero times by what time they were in second grade. <laughs> the point being that you should keep working on whatever those facts are. Mm-hmm. Um, notice we tell them to play games. But, but number three is really what you and I are getting at. I mean, imagine if your parents, knowingly, you know, with whatever the math was that you were doing at, at any grade level as you're growing up, would have asked you, what's this problem asking you to find out? You know, what does the problem tell you? Can you tell me about this problem in your own words? And they would just listen. 
And and if we could get parents actually, well, actually probably if we get teachers doing these prompts too, but but the reality is if we could get parents doing those kind of prompts, um, and, and even because I'm with you, I'm a very visual learner. So and and that actually helped me as a textbook author because. I was always insistent that we had visual representations of everything we, we teach in our books because um, I had to see it visually to understand it better. I needed a visual tool, not just some memorized algorithm. So, so the fact, so we try here to give the parents some some concrete ideas, including look at number five. I love it. Monitor your attitude <laughs> because you know, like, yeah. So. Yeah. Um, you had asked another interesting question too. I want to make sure I get to it. You, oh, it was about the testing. Yeah, I did want to talk about testing because I yeah. know there are um, early elementary. I, I can't speak to later elementary, but I know there's early elementary teachers who uh, are feeling uncomfortable with testing. So I was wondering if you could speak to assessment and what our goals are for assessment. Yeah. So. Um, it's, it's really funny. Um, I'm not a big fan of what I would call accountability testing or more summative testing, like from the state, you know, I, I get it that, um, I mean, even as a former school and superintendent, I mean, I get it that, um, you know, my evidence of my success in my job ultimately was evidence of our students being successful. Um, and that evidence comes from evidence of learning comes from the way of assessing them. Um, I think that pre-K two, um, our assessments should be very soft. There should there are no state assessments, which is good. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and that and I'm not even a big fan of district wide assessments. Like that, there's this big district wide assessment that every first grader has to take at you know the end of 12 weeks. Um, I generally don't support that. What I do support is a lot of what I would call more formative assessment, which is really more of a formative assessment process, meaning that. Um, whether, you know, and, and I'm not necessarily, when I say assessments, I don't think tests, just like a paper and pencil test. But when we assess, because ultimately, we teach a body of knowledge, unit one or whatever it is, and ultimately we have to find out, is there evidence of learning? What would be the evidence of learning I would present you to show my, your, let's say your child's in my class, what's the evidence of learning I have? They actually learn the standards. Um, it's what we call critical question number two in a professional learning community. How will we know if they know it? Well, that's based on the assessments we give them. But what I really like is when an assessment's used to respond to question three, which is what will be my response if you don't know it? If you're a child in my class and I give you an assessment and you take it and there are things you don't know, and maybe I gave you that assessment orally, or maybe I gave it to you in a journal, or maybe I gave it to you in some other form, or maybe you took it on a multiple choice Scantron in third grade, which <laughs> I know is stressful, or maybe you did it online, or whatever. But the reality is, what will be my response if there are things you don't know? Is it is is there? Well, can you now never learn them, or or do you have a chance to kind of identify what you still don't know, what standards you don't know, and then re relearn that and or re-engage in it until you do learn it. And the example I've always used is that when uh, my son was in high school, um, if he, if I had told him, look, on Friday, you're going to have a big test, you're going to have to mow our lawn. Um, and then I come home and he hasn't mowed it or he's mowed parts of it really poorly or he mowed some of it and left some of it undone. 
I said, my response to him is not going to be, well, since you chose to not mow it very well, or since you chose to not mow it at all, or since you chose to do it pretty poorly, you will never have to mow the lawn again. <laughs> right. No, my response is, until you get this done correctly, and until you can actually show me that you know how to mow the lawn, well, you're not going to get, you're not going to do it, you're basically done with your social life, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to lose things. So, so our response shouldn't be because you weren't able to demonstrate learning on the unit two test when I gave it to you on, you know, Friday, November 4th, you'll never have to show me again. No, my response should be, you have to learn what's, what the standards are in my class. So we need to have some kind of process set up. So when assessment is sort of used in the middle of a learning process, you know, here's a chance it's going to count but it's a demonstration of learning and if there are parts of things you don't know then you will re-engage them and still learn them when assessments used in a formative way then i think it's great because it's actually embedded as part of the instructional process and that's what you know we teach in all our work that's what matt and i both teach and and believe in so the problem I have with a state test in April is it's not used that way at all. It's just this some big summative test, and you get the results four months later, which is way too late mm -hmm. um, because you don't even have those students anymore. They've moved on to a different grade, um, and they they can provide some insight into what um, how it might affect my instruction next year. But as a general rule, you know, um, the purpose of a state test is political more than anything else. Um, so, so as as long as I could see, like when I go in and look at a school's assessments in math, I one I look to see if they're any good. You know, like are they really based on on, on some high quality standards that we consider are important? And then two, um, are they used in a formative way? Do we use the learning from the results of that test, both the students and the adults, in a meaningful way? And if the answer to that's yes, then the school's probably doing rocking. I mean, they're probably doing great things with their mm -hmm. kids. So, so it's funny because there's so much out there about assessment these days, and and, um, and what's really going on. And uh, for me, it all just distills down to if I'm going to go through the effort to gather evidence of learning or not then I must also add to it the effort of what's my response if they're not learning. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that needs to be efficient. I mean, for teachers, that can't be this big, huge load of work. It's got to be done in a way that, that holds students and, um, you know, really accountable to the learning and self-monitoring it. We, we have evidence that significant, um, you can double the rate of student learning in elementary school. This comes from James, uh, or from uh, uh, John Hattie's work, that uh, if you, if you get the kids to keep track of the standards they need to learn and their progress on those standards and where they're at in those standards as early as third grade, um, you double their speed of learning of math. So mm -hmm. it's the, developing that process in a meaningful way. And there's a lot out there about that now, but I think is really where it's headed. So, um, yeah, I guess the one thing I will say about the state test that has value is when you look at, like here in California, which has been on board with Smarter Balance since the beginning, and now they're in their third year of giving the Smarter Balance exam, right? Mm -hmm. 
And what's different about the Smarter Balance exam, besides it just being online, is that the problems are much more rigorous. I mean, they're they're much more complex in their reasoning. You do have to have demonstration of conceptual understanding of content and so on. And because teachers know that's coming, they are paying attention to it. And so now kids are getting access to open-ended questions. They're getting access to performance task items. They're getting access that 10 years ago, I didn't even see happening. Mm -hmm. So I know that sometimes, I mean, I'm not a big, I mean, I wish it would just naturally happen, but I think sometimes it happens because, um, because of the, the bigger picture, mm-hmm. I guess, uh, you know, of, of of not wanting to not have their kids prepared for this m- more complex exam. <clears throat> so, you know, I, I witnessed it uh, here in California 10 years ago. We had very rigorous standards, but the tests were so basic mm-hmm. in terms of what they really tested. Teachers would tell me, oh, Tim, I don't, I don't assign any of your word problems or any of the comp- more complex problems that are in your book. We don't need them. Kids are never going to have to know that stuff. Hmm. So I just do all the drill stuff. So it was forcing. It was literally kind of in a bad way, excuse the language, but bastardizing the books because they weren't really using the rich problem solving that was involved in the program because they didn't have to. Yeah. Their kids were still prepared for the state test anyway. Hmm. So... To me, now, you, you can't really do that, you know, and part of that's because of the test. So it probably has a value. I, I just don't like putting too much stock into one test on one day. Mm-hmm. I mean, come on. Uh, and I hate putting that kind of pressure on, on young kids. Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah. It's nice to hear that um, materials and tests are improving, though, I, that they're moving forward as we move forward. They are. They are. And really in very creative ways. You know, which which is really good. You know, and so uh, it's impossible, I think, today for for almost any student to go through a K eight curriculum in math and have strictly a, a, a procedural fluency curriculum or a drill and skill curriculum. That just, I I don't. Maybe it's happening. There there might be a few states um, where it's happening, but that's that's pretty rare. Yeah. I, I don't see that happening. I just see teachers not necessarily feeling confident in delivering on what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. More uh, earlier discussion. Yeah. Um, I'm going to have to wrap up. I'm sorry. I'm running out of time. I could, I could talk to you all night, though. <laughs> be funny. Do you, do you have any, uh, anything you, any last minute things you want teachers in the early elementary grades and to know any, any last points? Yes. Um, I would really want them to know this. Make a conscious decision to teach less, to teach less so that they can do, they can go deeper with fewer standards and, and actually have fun getting the kids through those standards. I so believe in that. In fact, I would almost say whatever they can do to work with their central office leaders and so on to just say, what could we take out of the curriculum in kindergarten? What could we take out of the curriculum in first grade? You know, it's really not all that essential. Are there some things we could cut back on so that we could do a great job with them, with them, um, you know, with, with what we know are the priority standards for each grade level? Because even the Common Core doesn't say everything's a priority. So there's there's pretty clear documents out there about which what are the priority standards, what are sort of the supporting standards, and what are just sort of like nice standards if you could get to them. And you know, and so 
if they could have the freedom to teach less, I would be all for that. Ha! How's that? <laughs> I love fun. that. I love <laughs> that. Thank you. Well, it's so nice to talk to you. I'm glad this worked out. It's so nice to talk to you too. And the book is Balancing the Equation, A Guide to School Mathematics for Educators and Parents. And it is uh, solutiontree.com. Is that the best place to find it? Yep. And NCTM. NCTM. Okay. We will send people your way. Have a great night. You too. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Thank you, everyone. Goodbye. Goodbye. Kindergarten Kiosk is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network, a network of podcasts for educators by educators. For more information, visit edupodcastnetwork.com. That's E-D-U podcast network dot com. Now can I listen to it?